Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Hello, welcome everyone to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Discovery Edition, and I'm your host, Captain Michael Flores. I'm also a Trill. I became a Trill. I have taken on the Tal symbiote. <laughs> so I should probably go by Michael Flores Tal. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I finally feel like I'm the person I should be, David. <laughs> finally. Yes. Listen, if I could construct a body, I would give myself a big dick. That's the first thing I would tell Colbert. Like, listen, I'm coming back. This is the opportunity to really give me a big penis. Either that or, you know, I would want to be in Jerry Ryan's body. Wait, you you want to live your life in Jerry Ryan's body? Jerry Ryan or seven of nine? Seven of nine. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, be more. That's more appropriate. (laughs) That's less creepy because it's a fictional character. Well, it could be worse, Mike. I could have gotten to the tail toad. You know who I would rather yeah, be in. Don't do that, please, because I'll turn your mic off and your camera. And uh, it kicked me out of the studio. Yeah. Okay. So today we are here to talk about Star Trek Discovery, episode three of season four, titled Choose to Live. Now, if you are a new listener to our show, we do cover a wide variety of Star Trek content. And you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck. Our preferred podcast provider is iTunes, although you can find us pretty much everywhere. But our preferred is iTunes because we need five-star ratings. It does help trigger algorithms that help others find or discover our show. So welcome, everyone. If you're new, I love you. If you've been here a while, I'm tired of you. No, <laughs> not really. I never grow tired of our listeners' long lasting relationships that are meaningful, Dave. What type of person would that make me? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know where I was going with that, but let's get into the episode. Okay. So, good news is this episode bounced back. It did. Discovery it did. bounced back with this episode. A solid script. Great direction, explanations, for example, Gray and the whole Trill equation. We had an away mission, a new alien species, gorgeous cinematography. I mean, the list goes on and on, Dave. This episode really did nail it, in my opinion. There's obviously a few nitpicks, but that's with everything that we do. We're critics. That's what we do. Well, yeah, because, I mean, like, here's the thing. The, with this episode, they had to bounce back from the last episode because it was missing that star trek feel it wasn't just missing star trek feel it was actually missing uh talent as well and the way of writing <laughs> yes I, I was trying to be nicer about no, it don't be nice <laughs> well as episode struggled it was a big old struggle bus but luckily 
that was not a preview of things to come. It was probably, hopefully, just an aberration. It was just it was a, a speed bump. Yeah, it was a new writer that hadn't written a lot of TV. And, um, you know, now that we're past that, hopefully we're going to get more episodes like the first episode and this one. Now, based on the opening, the seven-minute teaser, I knew the episode was going to be strong. If you want to know how to write television, I implore you to analyze the first seven minutes of the teaser because it does everything right. It sets everything in motion. It's quick, concise, boom, 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 credit sequence, and we now move into the first act. And amazingly, dude... I'm so happy that we finally got to see another ship, a different yeah. type of ship in, in this universe, the USS Credence. And it looked amazing. I mean, the, the effects of that first shot, that opening itself made me feel very secure as a Star Trek fan that basically, okay, I'm getting the vibes now. All right, here we go. Yeah, I was happy to because that's something we talk about a lot in this new era of Star era of star trek there are times where the show tends to feel a little claustrophobic i believe i mentioned that or discussed that during our picard breakdowns it feels so small in scope even though which might sound a little paradoxical What's the word, Dave? I'm retarded today. Uh, not retarded. That's inappropriate. <laughs> That's inappropriate. I am uh, slow-witted today. There you go. There I you apologize. Go. You're Sue Call. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I apologize. I try not to use that R word, David. But you know what? Evil influences. It happens. <laughs> okay, so where was I going? What was I talking about? You were basically talking about how the the first seven minutes truly set the tone for Star Trek. Because, like... You know, oh, no, the everything's cla- the claustrophobic. so claustrophobic from yes. Picard. Yeah. And and it's understandable because remember, Picard was supposed to be a personal story. Yeah. So being claustrophobic kind of made sense to some degree. Yeah. But it also made you feel closed off. Exactly. And it made the universe as a whole not feel very vast. And Star Trek has always been, it's always given it off this illusion of endless space there you go it goes with the whole idea of traveling through the stars to seek out new life and new civilization so when we get episodes like this in discovery that allows us to leave the confines of discovery and we go to a planet slash spaceship we see a moon we see new alien species and then we see a new starship as well and we actually see the inside of the starship and then we have a swashbuckling scene i mean it starts to feel a lot bigger in scope not just because something is shot cinematically and it looks like a feature film now we're actually given those spaces you know if you think about it too i mean especially with star trek the opening sequences of of a lot of the past Star Trek series kind of convey that vastness of space. I mean, like you look at every single opening, whether it's, you know, TNG, Deep Space Nine, especially Deep Space Nine's uh, opening that basically you see like almost like gas clouds and, and, and ships and, you know, 
things flying in space, it that type of feel is infamous with Star Trek. And a lot of people have been saying that the new era of Kurtzman, that's what we're missing. I mean, if you look at like the opening of Discovery and opening of Picard, me and you have gone back and forth about this. It's missing that TNG, that, that I don't want to say TNG, but that Star Trek vibe. Yeah, well, and people may be confused because we have said that the new Kurtzman era of Star Trek feels too big at times. But what we mean by that is the the villainy. Yeah, that's the different. Obstacles are very large in scale. So what I'm talking about, or I should say what we're talking about is spatially. Yes. So beyond just the ship itself. So I love episodes that we get like this, that, that do in fact take us beyond just the ship. Mm-hmm. All right, so this episode directed by Christopher J. Bryan and written by Terry Hughes Burton. The synopsis, Burnham and Tilly hunt the killer of a Starfleet officer as Stamets and the science team race against the clock to prevent the anomaly from killing anyone else. If they're not careful, I may not dislike Stamets this season (laughs) because Stamets is actually doing his job. Did you notice that? Yeah. And he has let some of that personal baggage drop away and he's acting more like a Starfleet officer. My biggest problem with Stamets over the last several seasons or few seasons, I should say, is that there's always something personal going on with him that prevents him from being a professional Starfleet officer. Whereas so far, I mean, this season, except for that moment when he screamed, you know, where's my family or how's my family? (laughs) He's actually acting differently. And well, I definitely appreciate that this year. A really great example of that is that moment when Stamets is dealing with the uh, Navarre scientist mm-hmm. and they're like treating him like, oh, he's he's not important. We must go and meditate. And Stamets is like just sitting there really awkwardly. And it's that one moment when basically I'm like going, this is how this is how you do really cool character moments. Right. And for Stamets, this was a cool character moment. It wasn't over the top. No. It gave us an idea that it it honestly made me feel sorry for Stamets because for the first time, he feels like he's surrounded by people smarter than him. (laughs) That's a good point. Okay, so there was a lot going on in this episode, and writer Terry Hughes Burton constructed her narrative to encompass multiple story arcs that paralleled each other all working together to push us fairly quickly through the multiple plot points that inevitably push the episode forward and to its conclusion. Uh, The first thing I'd like to jump into is the Trill stuff. And I want to say that I am actually satisfied with what they did in this episode and how they explained things. It was very easy, but I have said now since last season, I don't need an elaborate explanation, just something to show me that you recognize previous, previously established Star Trek canon. There are so many ways you can explain this consciousness issue. Uh, Just go to the vault and rewatch Deep Space Nine and you will see how they handle these exact type of scenarios in D space nine. And sure enough, they finally explained or at least alluded to gray's consciousness being ejected. Number one. Yeah. And in order to capture gray's consciousness, they had to use the Zontara 
krill ritual, which is what I have been mentioning several times now since last season. Let's mm-hmm. get a mention of this so we understand how her consciousness has been detached from the symbiote. And finally, we have that explanation, and they did, in fact, use the ritual. I like how they explained how Grace consciousness without a host mind to guide you could be lost during the transfer process. Yes. And the reason why I appreciate that is because if you watch Deep Space Nine where they performed this ritual, that was something that actually they needed in order for the consciousness to successfully stay intact. Um, transfer to the temporary host because if you're in deep space nine what they needed to do with Chetzia dax who was the trill in that show in order for her to communicate with each of her former or i should say with each of the former hosts of the dax symbiote they had to take on the body of one of the crew in deep space nine in order to communicate yes so the consciousness needed to be projected onto a mind and it needed those minds in order to guide it. So the fact that they even use this aspect to explain the potential rejection of the consciousness also works for me in a big way. It did. I mean, like my only, my only takeaway from the gray stuff was I like everything that you brought up. And I also like a lot of the other little things that happened during gray's transfer. I mean, like, Getting Adira more involved in the scene during those scenes was genius. I thought that because essentially Adira is is Grace Tether, and they should really really show that relationship. I I was really hoping that they would kind of give us more of the more importance of their relationship together, right? And they succeeded in all that. My only my only negative of the whole thing was. To wrap it up right away, like nothing seemed to be go wrong. Like you had the sense that something might go wrong. They told us, you know, oh, we have to do the ritual because if they don't do the ritual, something terrible will happen to Gray's consciousness. Okay, fantastic. But it just seemed to me by the end of it, it was like, okay, well, this worked out to pretty much it was like a fizzle to me. It was like, all of a sudden, Oh, everyone's happy in the end. Anyhow. And I was like thinking to myself in the past, we've always said as Star Trek fans for trills, it is incredibly dangerous to separate the consciousness from, from any trill, right? From the, from the quote unquote network of memories that's in, in the, planescape and during the whole thing with gray it just seemed like okay everything's everything's gonna be okay so you feel like they built this entire scenario up. up to possibly lead to tragedy and the loss of gray and then it amounted to a giant success and nullified any real potential any tragedy. potential, uh, not tragedy, but more or less more story. I mean, like, I don't feel that basically, well, Gray's back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we do from here? You know, it, it just seems like, well, the transference was perfect. So. Okay. So <laughs> I get what you're saying and I thought the same thing, but I'm looking at it a little differently than you, I suppose. 
I don't think all will be 100% with Gray because he's no longer Gray Tal. Is it Tal or Tall? Tall. He's no longer Gray Tall. And that's something that Star Trek Discovery fans who may not have watched other iterations of Star Trek, they may not be aware. But once he's been separated from the symbiote, he's not Gray Tal. Yeah. Any longer. He's just Gray. Possibly even the former person he was before being joined with the Tau. He might take on his previous name because part of the trill process when you become joined with a symbiote is you reject your previous life. And you become the life of the symbiote. That's who you are. That's how you identify. Yes. But now that you have been removed from the symbiote, there are problems that happen that we have seen in Star Trek. Now, for one, in Deep Space Nine and TNG, they have both established that when you are removed from the symbiote, or if the symbiote is removed from you, there are huge complications. You can typically die. Now, that could be an issue that we have veered away from or removed as an obstacle because the removal of the symbiote happened after Gray's death. Yes. And all that survived was the consciousness, right? Yes. Okay. So we can remove that potential threat. But what we can't remove is the feeling of loss. That's huge. So when you lose access to the symbiote and let's say you do survive, there's a huge grieving process because you're facing the loss of your entire identity. Yes. You no longer are in touch with the memories that made you who you are. I think that's what made me really, uh, I pointed out in the last episode that it got me intrigued because Gray mentioned how they wanted to actually become a host again. And I was like going, no, no they, they, they didn't can't. say that, did they? I thought they, I thought Gray just said a guardian. Cause a guardian doesn't mean they will be joined. I Remember sworn, not all trills are joined with yeah, the symbiote. I could have sworn he mentioned the becoming a host again. Well, then if that's the case and that could present some potential problems, but we'll see. Let's hold off and Let's reserve our judgment on that because yeah. we'll wait to see what happens there. And that's why that's why I was like figuring is like I'm hoping that basically it doesn't end just with everyone's happy now. Okay, happy ending. I, I don't think Maybe so. Here. I don't think it's gonna be a happy ending because despite Gray saying he feels whole, if yeah. they are to do this properly, then there's going to be a time of mourning for Gray based on Trek canon to lose your symbiont is the equivalent of of losing more than just a loved one. You're losing a part of yourself and all those memories are gone. Are gone. And that is a loss that is deeply felt. So I have to imagine that Gray is going to struggle with a bit of grief. And and I hope. I hope that's what they do. They have to. And maybe it might create problems between Adira and Gray because Adira now has the symbiote that Gray Exactly. And also, when you're a symbiote, you're supposed to project past lives. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
Adira and Gray had a relationship before Adira was joined. Once Adira's joined, she's no longer allowed, based on Trill tradition, yeah. in order to protect the symbiote and any potential complications of a domestic problem or in a domestic way, they are supposed to lose contact with any former relationships, yeah. whether it be family, mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. Those are things that are no longer a part, a of, part you of them once you become joined with a symbiote and you yes. have to remove yourself and reject those connections because mm-hmm. it creates complications. So if we're going to ignore those trill rituals, since Adira is not necessarily a trill and she's human, then that might work. But I feel like the writers do need to draw some attention to trill tradition tradition and what's expected of a trill. Because that's what made the relationship between Cisco and Jadzia interesting. That's why, you know, you know, the, our Star Trek's one of their favorite co- uh, connections was always Cisco calling Jadzia, you know, old man. Okay. So maybe I'm getting this wrong. Friendships they can keep. Friendships they can keep. It but is it's the intimate personal, relationships, yes, right? And, and mother, father stuff. It's, it's why basically remember when Jadzia died, uh, I forgot the character's name right after Jadzia, but the one who took yeah. over, took, took the Dak, Dax, uh, yeah. Dax Trill, she had to stay away from Worf. Right. <laughs> yeah, and also, if you remember, Jadzia in D Space Nine um, conf- was confronted by a former lover that she had when she was in a male body. Body. Yes. And they had a lesbian love affair in the episode. And it was looked down upon. In fact, the lover's brother reported her because yes. she was doing something that they're not supposed to do. And she would have lost the, and remember in that episode, her status. she would have lost her status and yeah. essentially have to give up the, the, the trill. I don't remember that part, but I, I don't doubt it. It's very complicated. So I'm hoping that they get into that, into that a bit, even if it's to say, hey, listen, with the loss of symbiotes and the the baby's cry that nearly destroyed the world and destroyed the universe maybe they look at things differently maybe but i mean it'd be there has to be a price you know in order to survive we have to adapt with the changes so we'll see i'm actually looking forward i hope they don't let this go i I said from the beginning when they introduced trill Trill back into Star Trek last season, I was very excited because the Trill species as a whole is so complicated and so awesome. And there's so many things you can do with it. I'm hoping they continue to use those elements to help craft Grays and Adira's story. It would make perfect sense and it would be an awesome way to really flesh out political discourse in the way of identity politics. If you want to do it correctly, This is actually how you do it. So let's do it. Let's get there. The only thing that I laughed at was when Guardian G. Let me rephrase this. When hologram (laughs) Guardian G Uh reached out to Gray's new body and said he cannot sense his consciousness. So so what's the deal with these new holograms? Do they defy all known laws of science? 
Was there an explanation I missed, David? How can a hologram sense anything? Yes. That I, I was very confused about that. That's like saying a Vulcan hologram appears. Let's yes. say the Vulcan president projects her image from Navarre to Discovery and then attempts a mind melt. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't work that way. That's like me calling you on the phone, Dave. And let's say you're cooking dinner. And when I'm on the phone, I say, wow, your cooking smells great. But how would I know <laughs> that you since know my that? olfactory senses don't supersede the confines of physics? <laughs> exactly. And you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because as soon as I saw that, as soon as I saw that, going, you know, this is one thing that could drive Mike insane. These types of things really frustrate me. And at first I was like thinking, you know, for me, I was like going, okay, maybe I'm just being nitpicky. Let's just let the story lie and see where it goes. The fact that they never brought it back up does bother me it bothers me for a couple reasons because you are right it does border on nitpicky i'm more about writing if your writing's good then i'm willing to forgive a lot of things and the writing of this episode or for this episode was was on point there was nothing wrong with it but i feel like issues like this like what we had during the previous episode where people apparently can walk through furniture once the hologram or the holodeck in their private rooms are activated for some reason they can walk through furniture that doesn't make sense and then you have something like this where hologram she can sense <laughs> and not to mention the stamets uh snafus as well yeah when he was a hologram when inside a, a book ship it doesn't really make sense you have to explain it possibly maybe these holograms have a way of activating the senses yeah i don't know i mean i'm okay with if it does but you have to explain that but the reason why i have issues like this is because it represents uh, a work ethic in a writing room if you're willing to shrug and say fuck it about something like this that just does not make sense logically then i also sometimes can roll downhill and start encompassing the writing exactly that's that's the thing is like am i willing to actually you know swallow and take a few of these little like hiccups no swallow and take a few of those little (laughs) little hiccups hiccups that doesn't sound (laughs) sound appropriate yes but but all those little mistakes all those little lethargic you know lazy writing lazy writing errors add up i, I don't know the would end. they be considered writing errors or just i think logistical uh, issues i think it's writing errors because it's, it really borderlines on basically a writer not paying attention to what he's he or they are writing and maybe it's not the writer's fault per se because let's say this writer is 22 years old and doesn't really understand the technology of Star Trek that's been firmly established for decades. Okay, fine. I can shrug and say, you know what? This, how would this person know this? Unless the showrunner, because if I was the showrunner of, of any Star Trek, you know yes. the first thing I would do, David? Congratulations. Welcome to your first day of within the writing room for Star Trek Michael Flores. That's the name of my fake Star Trek show. <laughs> and uh, before you even start writing anything, I want you to go to Netflix 
and I want you to binge watch every episode of Star Trek and take notes. I'll see you next week. Don't come back into the, uh, the office. Don't even call me. Come back next week with multiple tablets filled with notes. All right. See you later. That's the first thing I would do as a showrunner to make sure they understand the nuances of Star Trek. Not just, um, not just the thematics and the philosophical, but the way things work. Yes. Technologically. Um, so in my opinion, a problem like this, I'm willing to give the writer a break, but I'm not willing to give the showrunner a break because the showrunner should be reviewing this and saying that doesn't quite make sense. They're the last line of defense, basically the showrunner, because they're the editor. And if it gets past the editor, that's the editor's fault. <laughs> All right, so the writers are slowly bringing the Vulcan people back into the fold of the Federation. I should say the Navarre, right? Yes. Navarre. Yes, Navarre, as the Vulcans are a part of a shared culture now with the Romulans. The Romulans. Or a shared society. Which is really cool, dude. I wish they would do more explanations of how that happened and everything with with. Well, we know the it's Vulcans. connected to Spock. Yes. We know that. We know that it has to deal with that. And the things that he did during the TNG era. But think about it. This had to have gone on for thousands of years because Discovery is well, like... thousands. Hundreds. Hundreds. Yeah. D Discovery is far into the future. So this union of the Vulcans and the Romulans... Yeah. Essentially, you got to remember, in, in like, say, Picard timeline, we know that the Romulans are basically like spread out right they're 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 cast out into the stars because they don't have a home world and suddenly hundreds of years later they're they're tied together back again with the vulcans based on what spock had 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 been working on yeah and i'm like going man i want to actually see more explanation of how navar came to be it is actually one of the better new aspects of this era of star trek yeah at first i wasn't quite sure how to feel about it because i'm just so sold on vulcan you know i, I mean vulcan is just a part of star trek well the part so, for me it, it was really cool because it harkens back to the original concept of romulans and vulcans back in the yeah. original series that they were sister races that they, they're distant cousins. They're distant cousins, they basically. Yeah. They're distant, like, cousin races that, because of a civil war and a difference in, in, in belief, split them in half. Yeah. <laughs> so to have them you, come unite, back again, yeah, it makes that's sense. actually really cool. Yeah, I do like that. But I do like that the Federation relies, and I'm talking about Discovery here, I like that the Federation relies on Navarre. It feels right. You know, this whole alliance, the Vulcans were one of the founding members of Federation, of the Federation, and Vulcan and Romulans were finally brought together through, you know, diplomacy via Spock. So it feels right, it feels to, right. to have all of this together. And honestly, I feel like we need to constantly hearken back to Navarre and bringing the cap or the, the president of Navarre onto discovery into the interworkings of Starfleet and the Federation, because it just makes sense. It feels right to have an active member of Vol of Navarre, Navarre or Vulcan participating in all aspects of Starfleet and Federation decision-making. 
And I'm, I'm hoping by the end of the season, we see them officially join the Federation. The Federation. Yeah. So I think that I do, I do awesome. like it quite a bit. It's actually one of my favorite parts of discovery, both last season and this year. So this aspect, along with the Quowat, how do you say that? Quowat? Quowat Malat. Quowat Malat is one of the stronger elements that Discovery has brought to the show. I, I want to say since the show started, honestly, uh, to me, this felt like a true Trek episode because of how they chose to end the episode. It was not really neatly wrapped up writing wise. Yes. But from a story perspective, it was designed to be open ended. Yes. Due to the politics of the situation. Exactly. Uh, things yeah. needed to be done through a, a more diplomatic means uh, for the Federation. Their top agenda is to build the Federation back and they need Navarre. So letting Navarre handle the wayward Quowat, Quowat, what? Quowat, Malat, none <laughs> on their own. We get an episode that stresses. Are you ready for this? The needs of the many. many outweigh the needs of the few yes and understandably this didn't sit well with burnham but there was a lesson for burnham to learn which goes back to what the federation president had said during the very first episode and this is the type of thing that basically i mentioned in the last episode that burnham needs those moments to earn her spot on that chair to earn that spot as captain. That's what they're doing this year, Dave. We had said that they were trying to prove that she's captain material last season. Yes. It's what they're doing this year. That's what they're doing. Yes. It, by the way they started the the season with that whole discussion between the president and Burnham, it was a very clear dialogue with the audience that this is what they're doing. They are proving Burnham's value as a captain by hopefully sanding down some of those rougher edges. Rougher edges. So we'll see. So ultimately another aspect that really worked pertaining to this whole needs of the many from a story perspective this works but also it plays on those similar notes uh, from various other Star Trek iterations the original series, TNG Deep Space Nine and Voyager where the ending isn't always satisfying. Because the story isn't about satisfying conclusions. It is usually about posing questions. That is what Star Trek has done so well for so many years. And that's exactly what we get in this episode. We, For example, they pose certain questions. So when Admiral Vance and Burnham started talking about the politics involved in placing importance on diplomacy for the greater good, it reminded me of all those classic Trek scenes where... Now let's just use Kirk for for this. Oh, that's a perfect here, example. Where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy try to reconcile the events that had transpired in the episode. Exactly. It was fucking perfect. It, I love that they did that. And yeah, because of that, this is how for me a Star Trek episode should go. If you're doing an episodic series, this is an example of like a really episodic feel with the star trek series i feel like this is the direction they should write most of their episodes give us those linear those linear narrative arcs where we have you know a group of our crew working towards 
the end game of the meth arc. You know, like we had, we had Stamets and Book. That yes. was kind of their story. It was about it was about the myth arc, about figuring out what this the gravitational the, distortion is. Exactly. But then we had our other storyline dealing with something more closed ended because you're dealing with that new alien species and the Mulat nun. I'm okay with that. I feel like we should write more episodes like that. Sure. We can have an episode two, three, four, even in a row where we're dealing with the myth arc. I get what we're doing here. I'm not asking them to change their way of writing. This is a serial and I'm okay with that, but it doesn't mean they can't give us some of those more close ended stories as well. Yes. You know, the classic away mission stories. Mm hmm. And this episode handled that very well. So if they can keep doing that for us, I would be very, very grateful. Oh, yeah. Because, like, essentially you could get the better character development, especially for Burnham, if you were to do something like this. Because, as I said, you we need moments of Burnham earning being a captain. Yeah. Oh, we want to see her deal with the day-to-day operations exactly. as, as a captain as well. Not just the larger than life, grand scale, into the universe type issues and only. O- and the only way we can get that is if you get like episodes like this. Yeah. Yeah. So we got a glimpse of a new species, the Abronians, I believe is what they called them. Yeah. And I have to say. Interesting. I have to say that the Abronians is yet another example of the amazing special effects work that this team does. And I say special effects. I'm not quite sure if it was practical effects. It looked like it to me. It didn't look like CGI, at least the the one Abronian that was laying dead on the ground. And yeah, they, that, that definitely did not look CGI. Yeah, I mean, it looked good. It looked fantastic. And this is something Discovery has never, ever suffered from, which is poor character design. Sure, there are complaints, and I have a few, yeah. about some of our already established alien species like... The Klingons, like, what? That's <laughs> old news now. We've talked about that. Um, Even, potentially, there may be some issues with the Ferengi. We'll see. That's something I was going to bring up last episode, and I forgot. Oh, and we forgot about that, yeah. Either that captain that's a Ferengi is either... Really old. A, a hybrid, you know, half species of something else, you know? That's not even how you say that. Jesus, I cannot talk this episode. He's <laughs> either mixed with another species, or they have changed the way the Ferengi look again. Yes. But I, I'm going to reserve judgment on that until we have more facts. But with the Abronians and the, the species on Kaminar, both the Kalpians as well as the, the predator species that was there before. Oh yeah. I mean, they just looked fantastic and the Abronians were no different. They do a really good job with alien design. Especially when they're introducing new aliens, dude. I noticed yeah, that's that what Discovery saying, yeah. Discovery does a fantastic job of re uh, like I wouldn't say reintroducing, but introducing brand new ideas when it comes to alien species. I mean, even book species. The 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 uh, on Quajon, really cool concept. I like the uh, the idea of a species that's tied that deeply to their planet, to nature. And well, don't get too, you know, 
<laughs> close to it. Close to it's it. now destroyed. No, that's true. And maybe Book will die by the end of the series. <laughs> the no, but I agree with you. The Quajon, the whole we talked about that last season. The whole Quajon thing is really cool. It's how really they set awesome. it up. Yeah. So yes, the Abronians were interesting. I like the aspect of the biomatter that their biomatter is made up of high concentrations of latinum. Yes. <laughs> Look out, baby. Maybe there could be some Ferengis trying to uh I was about extract. to say Dude, I was hoping when they said that was what did they say not pirates was it? They were worried that a uh grave robbers grave, grave robbers. robbers. I was hoping like please show the grave robbers. Please. <laughs> please. please let them be Ferengis, they, please. Yes. I was like going <laughs> they have to be Ferengi, yeah. please. That's the only species that would ever do something as as corruptible as that. Yeah, because they can justify it. It's all about the money. It's all about the money. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure if the Bronians will be back this season, but the destruction of their home world felt a bit like a metaphor for what's happening with the gravitational distortion. Yes. So I'm not sure if they're going to try to tie it in or if it's just simply a metaphor for the the issues that our Discovery crew is facing. I wouldn't mind seeing them again, although it does feel a little close-ended, that aspect. Yeah. Okay, so Stamets has a theory. He believes the gravitational distor- the gravitational distortion is actually a primordial wormhole. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Pipe down. Do not get excited. It's consistent with wormhole behavior, yes. according to Stamets. And he gives it a new name, uh, DMA, Dark Matter Anomaly. But the episode alluded to the fact that he might be wrong in his assessment because it's missing tachyons. Tachyons are always present at the birth of a wormhole. Of a wormhole. Now, there's a lot of words that were thrown at us in this episode. And if you are a Star Trek follower, you know that a lot of these things also are preemptive to or mm, the best way to say this a lot, connected. These, a lot of these words are connected to time travel <laughs> tachyons we all know that's definitely a part of time travel time travel wormholes time travel, time travel. <laughs> and uh are we gonna be Jumping back in the time travel, Dave. Am in I, discovery. I, I, here's, here's, here's all I'm going to say. Because of what I found out today before the show and about a certain Kurtzman making a statement about a crossover being inevitable. Time travel looks to be in our future <laughs> because. Okay, so you sent me that article, right? Yes. Okay, hold on. Let me see if I can pull it up. You put it in our Discord page? Yes, I did. Yeah. So Alice Kurtzman talks inevitable Star Trek universe crossover, says Section 31 show is still alive. That's good news. All right, let me find the part you were talking about. It's really funny that you asked that question because I was just thinking about that this morning. Okay, so the interviewer asked Kurtzman about a crossover. He goes on to say, here's the thing about crossovers. I think crossovers can be really, really exciting, but they have to exist for a reason. Okay. With that logic right there, I'm actually okay with it. Okay. I'm actually okay with it. 
there has to be a great story reason to do it. And it has to move both shows forward in a way that I'm against. And it does feel <laughs> both of you are okay. He says, but I think we want to be as intentional about doing something like that as we've been about our selection of shows and the way in which we've curated each show to have its own distinct identity. Okay, I don't know if I want two shows individually to have a crossover. I feel like when you have a show that's bogged down by the idea of a crossover, suddenly the show loses its identity exactly, and it, and it becomes something entirely different. <laughs> We've seen this happen numerous times across television history. It doesn't always quite work out very well. Now, if they were to do a crossover where they want to have our shows meet, then what I, what I would suggest, and I think this would be a much better idea is that they produce a one-off event series. They produce a one-off event series, kind of like what Netflix did with the darker side of Marvel when it was airing on Netflix. When yeah, you had Daredevil, yes. Jessica Jones, Punisher, Punisher, Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Luke Cage, and then what they did, rather than having this giant elaborate crossover between all shows, they just created a one-off series titled The Defenders, which is based on a comic book which is a group of these heroes. So if they were to do something like that and just call it something entirely different and it's our crossover series, I feel like that would be a little more, I don't want to say Palatable. productive. <laughs> I feel like it, it would alleviate some of my stress as a exactly. viewer. And I would also alleviate any potential issues that may arise by having a crossover, which if you're going to have a crossover, that means you're going to have time travel. Yes. As well, again, exactly. and I am done with tra time travel. I I was done with it after Star Trek Four. <laughs> I'm over it. The only reason why I was okay with time travel in First Contact was because First Contact is such an exceptional film that I just ignored it and said, you know what, this movie is amazing, so I'm going to give them a pass on time travel. And the time travel wasn't really the story. It wasn't, you know, when you watch First Contact, it truly is about Picard's trauma with the Borg. That's what it comes down to. Right. It's it's his overall, he's not willing to let go. By the end, he has to learn to let go. Yeah. And But to look at everything we've done, though, in our shows. Voyager actually solved their problem of getting home through time travel. Yes. Star Trek, the 2009 reboot, was rebooted via time travel. <laughs> time travel. An issue we still haven't fully dealt with in the larger scale of Star Trek. No mention of Spock's disappearance. So it just creates problems. Now let's talk about the time travel aspects in Enterprise. Tons of problems, tons of issues. I feel like we need to move away from it. And that's exactly. something that I really liked in uh, last season when they said that last season of Discovery, when they said that time travel has been banned because they realized that after the the time wars is that what it was i forgot what the name of it now after the whole war with time travel they decided that the best way to make sure things don't happen like this again is to ban time travel i was like yes thank you that means we're never going to use it as a riding crutch again and we're forced to deal with the immediate the here and now exactly so i'm, I'm not a fan of time travel it gets muddy it fucks things up, especially after the explanation last season officially that 
you can't really change time. What you do is create a split. So if we have a crossover that has to do with time travel, how are you going to explain all these multiple splits they create? Exactly. And the the thing I'm worried about, because I, I'm going to not jump onto the ship that basically it's all going to lead to time travel. The one thing I'm going to be really, really, really cautious about and and watching is like, if they decide to use, and this just popped in my uh, popped in my head about the third time I watched the episode, what if they use the whole aspect of time travel to fix Huijun and bring it back? And I was like, going, they they can't, they can't, they they really should not go this route. So let me get this straight, Dave. You think they're going to start the season off by destroying a planet? Which is the dramatic, tragic, emotional element that propels the entire purpose of the season. Yes. The narrative, the story, the plot, all of it. Yes. Just to nullify it. Just to nullify it. At the end. Thereby. That's my worry. Nullifying the entire season. Yeah. That's my worry. That they won't do that. There's no way because that's really bad writing. They would not do that. Exactly. They wouldn't. Right? As I said. Right? As I said. (laughs) Exactly. When you start seeing little tiny mistakes in the writing, you start going down this route. I don't think they're going to do that. I hope not. I. Are they that? Are they going to be that bad? No, they're not going to do that. I'm going to say no. I have faith, Dave. You still have have faith. I have faith. Okay. Yes. I have faith. They're not going to do that. Now, when it comes to the crossover, we're going to put a pin in that and we'll talk about it as more news surfaces <laughs> about this crossover because I'm not entirely opposed to a crossover. They just need to handle it in a very delicate fashion. And I'm That's sorry. all I'm saying. I'm sorry. The, the, the pieces are there, Mike, if we if we think about it. Oh, I know. The pieces are all there. You, you have know, Q and Picard. You have time travel already happening in Picard season two. You have them. You have Discovery talking about elements that were in Picard, the Qualat Malat. You have them t- talking about the synth body. I know. They have the mention of Picard. I already know. <laughs> exactly. The breadcrumbs are there. Please. <laughs> I just don't want it. Especially because I, I like Discovery. Despite some of the issues I have, I like Discovery. Not to be entirely negative, but Card is a trash show. <laughs> it is written so bad. And if you doubt me, go listen to our, our, our breakdown and I guarantee you, we will win you over. And here's the thing. Because we are not wrong in that I, analysis. I've been told, Mike, I've been told by, by people who listen to us that we should give Picard a chance because you never know. New writers might make the show better. Hey, listen, they're right. They're not. They're, they're not, not. They're wrong. not wrong. They're not wrong. <laughs> and that's why I am cautiously looking forward to season two, because I know that the original showrunner from last season is pretty much been fired. <laughs> they yes. haven't said it. But he is nowhere in interviews. He is not in the writing room. He has actually said in an interview a year ago that he is not involved in the day-to-day at all. And we have a new showrunner. So we're getting off topic here, Dave. But it has has a lot to do with that gravitational distortion. Exactly. So are we off topic? 
Not really, because uh, that's what I was going to tell you. Is like technically we're not off topic because yeah. that gravitational distortion is the key to mm. everything. If the if the whole idea is to do a crossover between Discovery and Picard, the gravitational di- distortion is the way to do it. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Let's move on. Okay. So Tilly dislikes mac and cheese. <laughs> and I have to question everything about her now. <laughs> How dare you? Exactly. I, I felt my heart. Break. Not only do you dislike it, but you spit it out. Come on. <laughs> Mac and cheese is the best. All right. So Colbert is advising Tilly to try different things. And because dude, I of like, the, I like where they're doing with Tilly I from the too. beginning, because remember we were talking about how when she comes to the realization about her purpose, questioning discoveries their purpose here in the future to just basically run into everything that's just you know universe defying this whole episode suddenly they actually continued on that story because like tilly's been dealing with all this like self-questioning and everything i love it i think it's really good it's really good the whole idea that that she doesn't quite have a purpose or she doesn't feel like she has a purpose. She has no purpose. Or possibly she's now on the wrong path. And that whole discussion about at one point being on the right path, but then we realize once we get to an end point that we're no longer on the correct path and we need to find where we belong. That is a great story because it grounds Tilly's story in a more naturalistic way yeah. because her story is a very real story. It's a very human story. And when you take that aspect of this episode, Tilly's issues about purpose and questioning whether or not she's on the right path and you combine it with gray book and Burnham. And I'll break it down for you in a second here. We are getting Trek stories that actually, David, dissect and delve into the human condition. Tilly, loss of purpose. Yep. Gray represents isolation, loneliness, all encompassed within the intricacies of identity as it pertains to discovering who you really are. Book, dealing with loss, working our way through grief. Burnham, learning to realize that we cannot, cannot control everything. When you take all of that, and I'm sure I'm missing a few other aspects from other crew members, but when you take that, suddenly we have a show that actually reflects what Star Trek's always been about, mm-hmm. about the exploration of the human condition. Of the human condition, yeah. And that's why this episode stands above the rest so far. I have to go back again and rewatch Star Trek Discovery, all of it, but I don't think there's been a show that has reflected this many aspects of Trek, or I should say the classic themes of Trek. Classic themes of Trek. I mean, the closest one you probably probably could get is the uh, mid-season finale of season three, where yeah. they dealt with the Guardian of Forever, and yeah. they dealt with you all know, of George O's, George O's purpose yeah. in yeah. everything. But that was more of a centralized character. Yeah. I, I'm not saying, I don't want to be hyperbolic, so I'm not saying that this is the the best episode of all time, but I am saying that, that for me, this episode reflects a lot more of those familiar Trek aspects. 
Yeah. And I don't, especially in the end when Gabrielle advises Tilly on Book's ship, I thought that was shot really well because you go from Tilly being told about how everyone deals with different, uh, different life paths and everything. And then you cut, you, you go to Admiral Vance, you go to the, the scene with Admiral Vance and, uh, and Burnham, you go to Adira and it just really just flows perfectly. And it all starts with Tilly because remember, I mean, in the last episode we were talking about how Tilly could be kind of like that, the backbone, the kind of like the eyes of the story where we see everything through her eyes. It's not Burnham's eyes. It's her eyes. And to start it off with the the whole scene on book ship with Gabrielle, I thought was really cool and how it flowed into the ending yeah. because it does really give that Star Trek feel to it. Yeah, I agree. All right, Dave, this does bring us to our final thoughts. Why don't you start us off? Give me your RMD score and your final thoughts. My RMD score for this one, it is an uptick from the last one, which was the lowest rated uh, episode we had for Discovery. Ever. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> which was and still a 72 and 75%. 75%. Which was a 73.5% show average. This one, I I brought this up to a 88 I, I liked the episode, how everything was going. It was just that, as people probably could tell from listening uh, listening to us, mm-hmm. I have my hesitations now. Yeah. You introduce elements that could really, really break your show. Yeah. Time travel is the biggest one. But then you have like the little, the little kind of things that do annoy me, like the holograms, holograms thing. <laughs> and it, especially since... In the last episode, the hologram thing with Stamets irritated the crap out of me. Yeah. Because I'm like going, how's, how's this working? How, so does that mean if Stamets actually gets killed in the hologram, does he die in real life? What, what's, where's the tension? <laughs> yeah. I feel like these writers need to listen, write it, it like you do when it's a first draft, right? Right, yeah. right. Don't overthink it. But when you go back, you got to start questioning some of the, some of the things that you're trying to do with technology. And if you just think about it, common sense will tell you that that doesn't make sense unless you explain a piece of technology that would make it make sense. Mm-hmm. So you're going to give this a, an 88%? 88. Okay. All right. I'm going to give it an 89%. I felt like it was a strong episode. It would have been in the 90s, Dave, if it wasn't for the hologram thing the hologram thing because i don't feel like that's a nitpick necessarily it is something that if you continue to do things like that could really start to hurt your show yeah and they've already done it twice in three episodes so 89 percent. okay dave so just to clarify before we close out we have a few more minutes that we can delve into some of this crossover stuff i want to make it clear to people that i understand that Star Trek has done versions of crossovers before, but the way that Kurtzman's making this sound in his interview, that he's making it sound like this, an elaborate strategy that'll be this (laughs) singular story that will help push both shows forward that I'm not for. But if you have characters crossover, that's to be expected. That's That's something Star Trek has done forever. Yeah. So I'm not against that, 
but I am against an entire season geared around a crossover. That's dangerous territory. Oh yeah. So, all right. On that note, let's end our discussion. I want to thank everyone for listening. We should be back on track after today. This episode is late. And so was the last one because of the holiday. And of course, as we get closer to Christmas, we're probably going to be inconsistent with our releases as well, just because the studios closed between Christmas and new year's. And typically the network's actually off the air from January 23rd through March, typically. And we only come back to do shows that we have to do that are currently airing. So we will come back after the holiday for discovery, but we may be behind. Yes. All right. So this brings us to the end. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.